0: Well, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. In a moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. You'll notice, us not being in the book of Acts, that we're beginning our summer sermon series, and I know it is still May, but I have worked the calendar out. I'm going to be absent one Sunday in uh, one Sunday in July, and I need nine weeks to finish everything, and so we're beginning this week plus it's we're Paul is going on to Berea and then Thessalonica and then Athens, and he has his famous address at the Areopagus. We're going to pick all of that back up. In August. This is kind of the habit I've gotten into as I think about the rhythm of our yearly calendar, especially when it comes to preaching. We have our fall and spring semesters where we have our main study. We have a break during Advent and then a longer break during the summer where we can focus on another part of Scripture. I think having those breaks is healthy and invigorating for myself and. For you, we both get to study fresh material. I think those breaks are needed, especially when you take your time like we do going through books of the Bible. But this summer, we are going to look at the Beatitudes, those famous pronouncements of blessedness that are found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, So my plan is, this week is sort of an introduction to the Beatitudes, and then over the following eight weeks, we're going to look at each individual pronouncement. So next week will be, blessed are the poor in spirit, the following week will be, blessed are those who mourn, the following week, blessed are the meek, so on and so forth. Well, why the Beatitudes? Well, it fits our summer calendar. I was staring at my shelf of commentaries and just saying, Lord, help me. What are we going to do this summer? What would work for an eight or nine week period? And I picked up several commentaries and thumbed through them. And then I saw one that was specifically on the Beatitudes. And I thought, that will work. So it fits our allotted time. Another reason, I believe it will be especially helpful because it is a portrait of the believer. That's what the Beatitudes are. One of the more common questions I imagine that we have of Scripture is, how then shall we live? To quote Francis Schaeffer's famous work. You know, I've, I've believed in the Lord Jesus. That was last week's sermon. I'm resting and trusting in Him alone for salvation. I, I, I know my five soul is I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But what, what does life look like? What does the character of one who has been born again from above look like? like the Beatitudes tell us. Actually, the entire Sermon on the Mount provides illustrations of how the Christian is to live. But the Beatitudes found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are a summary of the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want a summary statement of that famous sermon, you can find it in the Beatitudes. Jesus lays them out in a way that is so simple, a child could easily memorize these verses. And that child could have in their minds all of the graces found in the character of a believer. So that's what we're studying so that we can see how we who have been sought by the Good Shepherd, we who have been called by the Good Shepherd, we who have been saved by the Good Shepherd, how do we live, the Beatitudes tell us. There's another reason. If it wasn't the desire to know how... We are to live the Christian life. Here's another desire that every person has: is happiness, blessedness. Every single man, woman, and child who has ever lived or will ever live is seeking happiness, and happiness, as we know, proves quite elusive. We look everywhere for it, in uh, everything, and we think we might have finally discovered happiness for a time, and we grasp hold of it only to lose it again. We desperately desire to be happy. Not only are the Beatitudes a portrait of the believer, but each one begins with the promise of, of blessedness. The Creator has promised that the person who is meek, the person who is merciful, the person who is pure in heart, the peacemaker, He's promised blessedness. Those who have responded to the call and followed Christ to them is promised enduring, satisfying, transcendent happiness. There's a couple commentaries I'm going to be leaning heavily on this summer. One of them is by the Puritan Thomas Watson, who does an exposition specifically on the Beatitudes. Uh, the second is a volume by Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, the English preacher who preached mid-20th mid century in England. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones has a volume on the entire Sermon on the Mount. And he, he wrote this. He says, quote, Happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. Anything which, by evading the difficulties, merely makes people happy for the time being, is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems. That is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always Offering happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness and to final misery and wretchedness. Dr. Lloyd Jones continues The Sermon on the Mount says, however, if you really want to be happy, here is the way. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly happy, who is truly blessed. This is the sort of person who is to be congratulated, end quote. I think it's safe to guess that that is what you long for as well, to be truly happy, to experience this blessedness in the Beatitudes. Tell us uh, to whom this blessedness is promised. So that's what we're studying, why we're studying it this summer. And before we dive deeper into the introduction, let's go ahead and pray and then read our text. Heavenly Father, would you be with our minds and our ears as we turn to your word and as we read it. Father, by your grace, with these traits sink down uh, within our hearts? Would you implant them within us? Would you cultivate them uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit? And so produce within us uh, the, the fruit and good works for which the Lord Jesus uh, died that we might be able to do. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Up to this point, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, going from synagogue to synagogue, teaching the people. Not only was he teaching, he was also healing In chapter 4, Matthew tells us he's going all throughout Galilee, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, and great crowds followed him. Those crowds are mentioned here. Uh, The curious multitude uh, following in all likelihood simply because of his miracles. Some from this crowd uh, will... Be brought to saving faith and become disciples. Others will remain neutral and uncommitted. But the crowd is there. We're told that Jesus goes up the mountain. In all likelihood it's more like a hill or a bald in the Galilean countryside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It would have been beautiful scenery. You can travel to this area today, and there's a church built atop a hill where it's believed Uh, this sermon was given, but we don't know for certain. Jesus goes up on this hill in the countryside. He sits down, which this is the ordinary practice of rabbis when they would teach. makes me wonder if I should have a stool while I'm up here, be one of those preachers who sits on the stool. Jesus sat down, his disciples came, gathered around him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Jesus has just called these disciples. You can look back in Matthew chapter 4 and see he has called Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. There may have been others present, but we know at least those four men were there. And he opens his mouth and teaches them. And what follows for the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon. Now, Matthew does not give us... The full transcript, the original, was probably much longer. What we have is a summary of the original. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the distilled sermon notes. And even though we have a summary, the world has never seen more impactful sermon notes than these. These. When we think of the Sermon on the Mount, there are so many parts that are familiar. It's one of the most widely read portions of Scripture. So often, I know, when, in our own devotional reading, it's probably very common to turn to Matthew and begin Matthew, and you get to these very quickly. There are statements and teachings in this sermon that are some of the most widely known, quickly recognized, most quoted verses in all of Scripture, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And make sure you notice the order of things really quickly so that we don't get confused. Jesus has already called them. He sought them out. Told them to follow him. They leave their nets, their families, their homes, and follow Jesus. He tells them that he's going to make them fishers of men that they will join in his work of gathering the crowds, the sheep with no shepherd. They are going to help bring people into Christ's kingdom just as they had previously gathered fish from the sea. And the shepherdless sheep will be brought into the fold. So get that. Jesus has sought them out. He has called them. He has told them the work he has for them. And they have responded, and now he teaches them how they are to live as disciples. Let's be clear. As we're going through the Beatitudes, Jesus is not saying, This is what you must do in order to enter my kingdom. He's already sought them out, he's already called them, he's already given them the ability to respond, to leave their employment, their homes, their parents. And now he is saying, this is what life looks like for my followers. This is what life, this is what it looks like as you navigate this sinful, broken world that has not yet been made new. There's a helpful note in one of my study Bibles. It said, the Sermon on the Mount shows what life should look like for a heart that has been melted and transformed by the, uh, by the gospel of grace. What does life look like for a heart that has been melted and transformed by the gospel of grace? The Lord Jesus tells us in this sermon. He's teaching us how we are to live. He's teaching us how we are to love one another. You remember the The new commandment that he gives. He tells his people, he he tells his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. How do we do that? The Sermon on the Mount is an elaboration of that new commandment. He has loved us, and so we are to love one another. The Apostle Paul writing... In a letter to Titus, this is Titus 2, 11 through 14, he wrote, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the motivation behind the Sermon on the Mount. Training those to whom the grace of God has appeared to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we await our blessed hope. It's important we understand something about the Sermon on the Mount so that we'll understand uh, the Beatitudes. In the same way, it's, it's good to know something about the forest before you zoom in on the trees. Well, let's consider those trees. What are the Beatitudes? Well, to begin with, as I previously mentioned, the Beatitudes are marks, distinguishing characteristics of those whose hearts have been melted and transformed by the grace of God. And they are for all of us. As I said earlier, these this is not a list that only applies to the varsity squad in the church. This is not a list that only applies to the prayer warriors. Not a list that only describes the all-stars or the professional Christians. This is a picture of the character of one who has been born again. This describes all Christians, and just as the Beatitudes are for all of us, we are for all of them, meaning this, maybe you've taken a spiritual gifts inventory at some time, and you're like, well, I'm gifted here, maybe I'm gifted in evangelism, but not in this area, and we can, uh, we uh, take some comfort or find that interesting we might be tempted to do the same here where we view this, uh, this list given in the Beatitudes as this type of buffet where you can go through and take some and leave others that you aren't crazy about. You might think, well, I'll, I'll just take, I'll take Peacemaker, but I'm going to leave suffering and persecution. I'll take Pure in Heart, but I'm going to pass on Mourning, we cannot do that. The Beatitudes are for all of us, and we are for all of them. These are the characteristics, the traits found in the believer. Now, it is very true that these characteristics do not naturally appear in us. We are not born peacemakers. We are not born pure in heart. We are not naturally hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? I mean, who aspires on their own, apart from a work of the Spirit, to be poor in spirit or to be mournful or to be meek? If the grace of God has not worked in our hearts, we scoff at this list. We would despise it. It's natural for us. It would be impossible for you, in your own strength, to perfectly conform to what we see in the Beatitudes. These are worked in us by the Holy Spirit. They are a product of grace. But even knowing that, as we read through these, I'm sure you can see yourself that some of these prove more difficult than others. And I don't think it will be until the very last day when we finally see the Lord Jesus face to face. Not until then will we perfectly manifest every one of these fully. But even though that's true, don't write, don't write any of them off as unimportant or impossible. These are the very first words the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples. and They're encouraging. These aren't a cold checklist of character traits. They're pronouncements of blessedness upon God's children. Let's just think about how the Lord begins this sermon. The very first thing he says, he could have come out hammering the Pharisees. He could have told the disciples that they would leave him in his greatest time of trial. There are any number of ways he could have began this sermon. But he chooses to begin by pronouncing blessedness on his disciples. I said I'd be leaning on the Puritan Thomas Watson a good bit during this study. He writes, quote, Christ does not begin his sermon on the mount as the law was delivered on the mount with commands and threatenings, the trumpet sounding, the fire flaming, the earth quaking, the hearts of the Israelites too for fear, but our Savior, whose lips dropped as the honeycomb, begins with promises and blessings. So sweet and ravishing was the doctrine of this heavenly Orpheus that, like music, it was able to charm the most savage natures, yet to draw hearts of stone to him. End quote. That's how these beatitudes begin with Jesus pronouncing blessedness upon his people. If we're going to talk about the Beatitudes. We need to talk about the word blessedness. It's actually what Beatitude means. Beatitude means supreme blessedness. But we also see the word blessed in each verse, from 3 down to verse 10. And quick note on pronunciation here. Maybe you're just better at grammar than I am. I want you to be aware of this. If you got confused here, you aren't alone. When do you say blessed and when do you say blessed? I'm going to have a very quick pronunciation lesson. Whenever this word is used as a verb, we pronounce it blessed. But when it's used as an adjective, as it... Is here in Matthew 5, we pronounce it blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Just there's your quick grammar lesson for the day. But what's the meaning of blessed? Seems like an important thing to know. We just read it over and over and over again. What does it mean? Well, there are two Greek words that you will find in your New Testament that we will translate as blessed. The first is not in Matthew 5. It's the word uh, eulogatos. And it means to praise or to speak well of. Right? Eulogatos. An example, you're going to love this. It's in Ephesians 1. Paul writes, Blessed, you Logotos, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, same word, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I'm just going to add to your amazement of Ephesians 1. 3 through 10 is already amazing. This is going to take it over the top. Paul is saying, he uses this word to praise or to speak well of, and he opens his letter to the Ephesians, praising God because God has spoken well of us in his beloved son. That is unbelievable. We speak well of his name, but he speaks well of your name in Christ. It's amazing. That's the first word for blessed, eulogotos. The second is the one Matthew uses here in the Beatitudes. Uh, uh, Makarios. Maca- uh, oh man, I'm messing up that pronunciation. Makarios. Makarios. That's it. Makarios. My brain was not working. Makarios. It means happy and carefree. Now I know. As some conservative Presbyterians, we hear that and that makes us very uncomfortable. So we know we are not supposed to be happy, we're supposed to be holy. Um, someone made a joke about, the, we, we love the Puritans. Uh, but someone made a joke about the Puritans, that to be a Puritan means that there's, someone somewhere is happy and that's not good. Um, but this, this makes us uncomfortable to be happy, to be carefree, to be glad. That's what makarios means. My favorite definition I found is this. It is being one who is conscious that his great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled. You are conscious that your great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled. Fulfilled. That's the word Matthew gives us here in chapter 5. It's repeated over and over and over again in these 10 verses. Jesus begins this sermon by promising them blessedness. That's my favorite definition of blessedness. Here's my favorite quote from week one on the Beatitudes. It's from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson who gave a sermon on the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed is the surname of every true child of God. Blessed is the surname of every true child of God. Jesus is promising here that for his disciples, For forgiven sinners, for the redeemed children of God, their family name is Makarios. Your family name, your last name is blessed, happy, because you're conscious that your great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled in Christ. Now, I gave it away a little bit there. Why are we happy? You know, upon first reading of the Beatitudes, we can see this is a very unique type of happiness. There's something different here because it is not typical to put happiness with what we see in the Beatitudes. What is the worldly definition of happiness? It's having enough of whatever it is we think we need to be successful and to thrive in this world. I think that's a decent definition. I just, I want enough stuff of what I need to be able to do, to be able to thrive in this world. But Jesus speaks of happiness and it accompanies being poor in spirit. It accompanies times of mourning. It resides in the heart of the believer, even in times of suffering and persecution. So what makes them happy? What's the source of this blessedness? It is not worldly possessions. And if you want to argue with that, just ask King Solomon, who had it all and said, it's all vanity. It is all chasing after the wind. The acquisition of worldly things is not where blessedness is found. This makarios, this blessedness, is ours because we belong to the Lord. He is our God. We are his people. And blessed is our surname. It is our surname Because of the atoning work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. So that we who were children of wrath are made children of God. We are forgiven. We are adopted. We are made co-heirs with Christ. We possess his righteousness. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In Christ, God the Father celebrates us. And makes much of our name. That's the source of this blessedness. Jesus in the Beatitudes is not telling his disciples how they feel. He's not telling them how they feel. You know, if you're poor in spirit, then you'll feel very blessed. If you're meek, you will feel very blessed. No. No. He's making an objective statement about what God thinks of them in Christ. What does God think of you in Christ? You are blessed. Knowing this brings forth that happiness. This sinking down into our hearts produces this. No matter the circumstances of life, no matter the pain, even when the crowd, you have Jesus and the disciples, and then the crowd, even when the crowd turns against you and reviles you and persecutes you, you are children. Blessed is your last name, and it will never be taken away. This blessedness endures forever. We can be glad. That's the promise he gives. That's how this sermon begins. And beginning next week, we'll look at the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would gift to your people comfort and assurance that they belong to you, that blessedness is their surname, that through the work of Christ, your Son, the children of wrath have been made children of God. Father, would we be those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Would we be those who pursue pureness of heart and meekness the rest of these beatitudes given. Father, would we be those who are transformed, those who are renewed in mind and soul? Father, would you do so that you might be glorified and that we might love and serve our neighbor well? Show us, teach us how to love, how we are to love because we have first been loved by you. Would you bless this time and this study this summer? Would it be profitable for your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.